It's uh, at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is a very snowy Sunday, January 23rd. Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 4, 14 through 19. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood uh, up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our our Lord's favor. Amen. I think it was the Friday night before Heritage Fair that I first met Jesse. I'm pretty sure because we were setting up tables together and, and the church that he was just starting to attend, traditionally did breakfast on the morning of Heritage Fair. And so I think we are setting up tables for that. I don't know. I I would have to say it was the church he was beginning to attend because he would not have considered it his church at that point. He was not happy to be there. After all, he had grown up in Central California and his mother had just taken the position at UBBC Church in our district. And so he was flown across the country and had to start his junior year in high school at a new, co- at a new high school in Pennsylvania. And for some reason, he didn't like that. To be fair, I didn't care for Jesse either. He was loud. He was crass. He was rude. He was, well, to use an old war- word, a bore. He stood there telling me all about the camp that he had gone to growing up, how much nicer it was, how much better its facilities were, and how much better their big festival was every year. As someone who both was a person who worked a lot at the camp and cared deeply for it, I didn't take his comments very well. I had a very poor first impression of him. Now, Jesse was a year older than me, so I kind of got to know him over the next two years, just a little bit. I would see him at different things or when we visited his church. But then he graduated and went to Manchester University, and I didn't see him for a year. Then I graduated, and I went to Elizabethtown. And at that point, I'm not sure of everything that had happened, but Jesse made the decision to transfer from Manchester University to the far superior Elizabethtown College, which is obvious to me that he would do that. (laughs) Take that, Manchester. (laughs) Anyway, we reconnected. And after the first term had ended, neither of us being very happy with our current roommates or living situation, we decided to become roommates. And this day, Jesse remains one of my dearest friends in this world. 
Yes, he is still loud and crass and rude and, frankly, a bore quite often. Yeah. Hey, it's the East Coast. We have to be loud or you don't get anything done. No, but he's also one of the best listeners I have ever known. He's one of the kindest souls. He cares deeply for those around him. He may say rude things, but honestly, I think for the most part, they're just funny. And he has an amazing sense of detail. It's one of the reasons why whenever I see his mother posting pictures of the things he baked, it always makes me hungry because he is a wonderful baker. You know, I'm glad that first impression didn't ruin me on Jesse. I would have really missed out. But, you know, a first impression won't destroy your chance to really get to know someone, to form that kind of relationship, but it certainly can make it last, take a lot longer to get there. That's why when we typically we go into a situation where we do need to make a first impression, we try hard to make a good one. We think about what we wear, what the clothing we, we have on may symbolize. What does it tell people about us, about our seriousness? What does... What does our makeup or the way we shave our faces mean? How's our hair done? You know, you might even take extra time to, to consider what are possible things that could happen and how should I respond? Because we want to make that perfect first impression. Not that Jesse tried that day. It's the same for the gospel writers. Each one of them, as they introduced Jesus, were very meticulous and creating an understanding of who he was. Now, yes, each of them introduced Jesus in a different way. We know Matthew and Luke have the nativity stories. Mark, Jesus just appears out of nowhere, and off we go, and that's Mark for you. And John talks about how Jesus, the God incarnate, has been a spirit around since the very beginning. But if you go a little further in, you'll notice that each one of them, the way they are introduced as a speaking person in their gospel, also reflects who they are. For instance, Matthew. Matthew's concerned about doing things the right way. You know, like in Matthew, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he is riding on a colt and a donkey. Because the way the scriptures reads is he will come a-riding in on a donkey. He will come a-riding in on a colt. And so in that one, he's riding on both. And so how does Matthew open? How does Jesus talk to somebody for the first time? Well, it's when John the Baptist wants to baptize him. And John says, I can't do it. You know, you're the Messiah. And Jesus turns to him and says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So we are introduced to a Jesus who is concerned about doing things the right and proper way. Mark, on the other hand, who gets straight to the punch with everything. You know, it's got to be this. Mark's first lines that Jesus speaks is uh, he, he uh, proclaims his message. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In John, it's one of the weirder starts. 
John's star, uh, John the Baptist points out Jesus to his followers, and two of them, one of them's Andrew, follow Jesus. And Jesus' first line is when he turns around and realizes he's being followed and says, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. John has his signs. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, so he shows it through these signs. And how does Jesus first speak? He speaks in the response to somebody seeing a sign and following it. And that brings us to today's opening scripture, to Luke. Luke, who we'll be exploring through Easter, has a very specific Christ he wants us to know about. So much that he actually breaks the story in a different way than Matthew and Mark. Mind you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're the synoptics, so they all kind of have the same roadmap. But he reorders things. So instead of Jesus going through the temptations, and, well, go baptized, going through the temptations, and then calling his uh, disciples, and then going to Nazareth, Matthew moves Nazareth ahead to for the disciples. So the first lines you hear from Jesus are, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is an astounding passage to read for him. One that would have been both exciting and frightening for them to hear. Jesus is calling forth the Jubilee. So I know when you hear Jubilee, you think probably Queen Elizabeth II, right? That's the one we always hear. You know, oh, it's Queen. How many Jubilees is she on? I have no idea. She's got to be like platinum at this point. Jubilee actually comes out of the old law. You see, every seventh day was the Sabbath the day of rest. Every seventh year was the sabbatical year, the year of rest. In that year, you weren't supposed to plant any, anything that would go in the fields. You couldn't, so they were allowed to lie fallow for that year. You could only eat what you had saved from the year before. Sixth year was always supposed to be an extra big year of harvest for you. And you were allowed to pick things. So you could go into your orchards and your vineyards. You could still pick that same time, though, there were other things happening. You were supposed to spend more time with your family instead of working in the fields, more time in prayer, more time in study. You were also supposed to forgive any debts between yourself and other Israelites. Essentially, all the account books would be wiped clean. It was a test of faith. Do you believe in the God who will care for you and yours? Will you be able... To say, God, I trust that I can eat for this next year. God, that I trust that the finances I have put places that I can survive by losing this debt that someone owes me. Now, there is a Sabbath of the Sabbath of the Sabbath, and that's the Jubilee. After seven cycles of sabbatical years, which, you know, seven times seven, we're at 49, on the 50th year, was the Jubilee. Now, Jubilee was 
pretty much the same as the Sabbath, the sabbatical year. You didn't grow anything. You could only pick, which meant you went two years without growing anything. So the 48th year had to be a really good crop. But not only did you get rid of any debts, you also released any Israelite slaves. Of course, to be fair, the only reason you were ever an Israelite slave was because you were in debt. That's the way it worked. But anyway, any Israelite slave was freed. Any land that had been sold in the last 50 years would go back to the original owners, the ones who had received the land when Joshua had led the Hebrews out of the desert and conquered the land. So that meant you never really bought land. You just leased it until the next jubilee. In fact, there's an entire chapter in the law that talks about how you figure out how much a piece of land is worth based on using jubilee and all that. It's God, God got details in there for you. You didn't have to worry too terribly much. It was a way to ensure that no group became too wealthy or too powerful. And that poverty, destitution, wasn't generational. If your father had done poorly in his life, there was a chance that you would get back the lands that were your, his in your life. That you would be able to live, well, comfortably at least. Especially in a day and age when basically everyone needed land. Everyone needed that just to make food for themselves, if not make money. It was a system in place that would periodically shrink the wealth gap and bring back a taste of the, of the miracle of the exodus, of God's salvation for them from slavery and bringing them into a land of milk and honey. However, the people who were in charge of running the Jubilee were also the ones who, well, had everything. They were the tribal leaders, later the kings and the nobles, the high priests. And as amazing as the Jubilee is, for all of the biblical history and any historical record we have outside of the biblical history, not once do we find that the Jubilee was celebrated. Not one mention. Like I would give you that they wouldn't mention every single one, but the fact that they didn't mention a single one leads us to believe that the Jubilee was just never celebrated in full. That doesn't sound like people, right? We all practice the faith that we profess perfectly, right? No. Jesus is opening lines. The first time he preaches in Luke, it's not calling others to follow him. It's not proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near. But it's calling his fellow Jews to embrace one of God's most extreme commands. Now, God, remember, Galilee is the stronghold of the Pharisees. Jesus himself was most likely a Pharisee. At the very least, he had grown up Pharisee. He had been taught as a Pharisee. The fact that he is called a rabbi tells us that he was in a Pharisee system. But he does not like the fact that these other people all read the same thing, all studied the same thing, and they are not making it work. 
That's what he was always speaking about. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> he, that's why he calls these men hypocrites. Because they prefer their comfort and prestige over following the laws that they profess that they follow perfectly. They all knew about Jubilee. They all knew about the sabbatical year. Jesus' first words in Luke are, will firmly proclaim his conviction of following the true law. The law that is meant to bring justice, equality, and the love of God. It also went further. After all, Jubilee is actually out of the law. As I said, it's out of, uh, I want to say Leviticus, but don't quote me on that. But it's not from Leviticus that he chooses. It's out of Isaiah, out of the prophet. And not just that, he would have read the original version. Now, Luke is recording his gospel. It's been at least 50 to 80 years after Jesus has had his death and resurrection. Luke never met Jesus. In fact, he probably wasn't Jewish. He probably was a Gentile. He had grown up reading and writing in Greek. If he was a Jew, he was a very Hellenized Jew. He probably didn't know Hebrew. So when he was told that Jesus read this passage... He went to his Septuagint and opened it up and recorded it out of there. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. It happened about 400 years before Christ, where the story goes, I can't remember, yeah, 70 translators and 70 knights translated the entire uh, Old Testament into Greek. That's what Septuagint means, 70 But they did make some differences. Just like when we talk about the translation of Greek to English, it's not always clean. The same thing from Hebrew to Greek. And so the original passage in Isaiah, the one that Jesus would have spoken the extremely devout Galilean region, would have been in the original Hebrew. And it goes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's mostly the same, but it's a little different. It's twisted slightly, well, more about captivity and prisoners. Here are the two words that jump out to me, though the ones that make a huge difference when we read it from the Greek version versus the Hebrew version. The word poor. In Greek and in Hebrew, of course, both mean poor. You're financially poor, lack material wealth. They also can both mean humble or meek, like the poor in spirit in, in, the, um, in the Beatitudes. But that's where the Greek ends. The Hebrew goes further. It's someone who can also be oppressed, someone who has low status, those who are ostracized. So while poor and meek would mean, you know, our general way we think of it today in Greek, Zacchaeus in Hebrew would have been included. You know, Zacchaeus, he was financially wealthy. So was uh, Matthew or, or Levi, the tax collector who becomes a disciple, probably well off financially but he is ostracized from his community. They would count 
as one who is poor in this reading. Or the Greek word for freedom. It connotates release from prison, a pardon, forgiveness because you have done something wrong and have been punished for it. I mean, this works well with our sins, right? The way we think about that. We are held captive by our sins and we are given grace, forgiveness, release from that. But the Hebrew doesn't blame you. The Hebrew word in here, this for freedom, is like that of water behind an earthen dam. An earthen dam that then is ripped open and the water is allowed to flow free from behind it. It is not liberty because you have made mistakes. It is liberty because the world or people have put obstacles between you and your freedom. God is promising us in this not to be forgiven from sins, which is promised many times elsewhere, but to have those things that hold us back from being truly free removed. What happens next, again, differs from Matthew and Mark. In their versions, the men of Nazareth hear this, and they understand that Jesus is making a messianic claim, and they reject him. They don't believe him. And we are told that because they do not believe, Jesus can work no miracles among them. But Luke, Luke, they have a very different reaction. They hear what he says. And Luke tells us, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Why? Because they were the poor. They were the captive. They were not being held in by their own sins, but by the obstacles put in their way. They were being held back by the Herodians, by the Romans, by the Sadducees, by the world that was holding them down. And God would come, and just like a child playing with, well, a stream, push the rocks and the sticks and leaves out of the way, and they would run free again. They said to themselves, is this not the son of Joseph? Is this not the Messiah we were waiting for? But Jesus doesn't stop there in Luke. He goes on to tell them that some of them will surely now demand that he perform miracles, just as he had elsewhere. He had already been teaching some at this point. And he said, others are going to make the claim that I am deluding myself. They'll say, doctor, heal yourself. And then he goes on and he talks about Elijah. Elijah who told Ahab there was going to be a great drought for seven years. And then he goes into hiding. And where does God send him? To the widow of Zarephath in Phoenicia, in the enemies of, among the enemies of the Israelites. There... He cares for her, and God cares for them. And Elisha, you know, Elisha does a lot of amazing miracles. But of all the miracles, he only heals one leper. And that leper is not an Israelite. That leper is Naaman, a general of the Syrians, the enemies. His point being that the Israelites were not given miracles when they were demanded. God does not give them just because they 
affect it. But God helps those who have faith in God, just as Naaman simply has faith in God. In Matthew and Mark, we see this come about in their story as well, of course, because in theirs, these people have no faith, so there's no miracles. But in Luke, it turns a lot worse. For as positive as they felt about Jesus before he went on, they were now just as angry at him. He owed them something. After all, he was one of their own, and he was rejecting them, that he owed them nothing. And so they took him and they drove him to the edge of the cliff with the intention of throwing him off of it. This is one of those kind of weird minor miracles. We don't really know what happens. But the next thing we are told is Jesus walks through their midst and leaves them. Their anger is not at Jesus' messianic claim, but it is at his rejection of being expected, because he is simply one of them, and it is at his insinuation that God will give salvation beyond the Jews, that God will offer salvation to the Gentiles. And so those from Jesus' hometown reject him. What does that mean for us? God offers salvation to every single person, no matter who we are. And God offers salvation that is more multifaceted than one simple thing or another. It's larger, it's more complex. We will be journeying with Luke. At first, we'll spend some time with Luke following Jesus around the Galilee as we try to learn who this man is. Then Jesus will lead us out of Galilee and on towards Jerusalem where we learn about what it means to be his follower. And then at last we will learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that rejects that. That's Luke's story for us. But it starts here. It starts with a proclamation of jubilee. That the obstacles that hold us back from being who we are, from the liberty of who we are, will be removed. I know he's, he's going, I know where he's going, so I'm not taking offense. He told me not to. So, are you ready? Are you ready to allow God to push the obstacles out of the way? I remember as a small child playing in the stream at camp with a big stick, pushing sticks and leaves and rocks that had gotten caught in the stream and watching the water flow. The thing is, is it's not an easy thing because when you push it free, it's not clear and easy right away. It starts out muddy and leafy, full of detritus but then it will run clear. So as God prepares, as God pushes free those obstacles in our lives, it may be leafy and detritus at the beginning, but know that God is making us run free and clear. So proclaim, proclaim the year of the Lord. Proclaim Jubilee. Thank you.
It is the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Every year is a year of Jubilee in Jesus, isn't it? So as you go out there today, know that. And may I give you a special blessing. May you be safe in your travels home today and reach your doorstep safely and through your doorstep in case there's ice there. <laughs> blessings, blessings, for this is the Lord's year. Amen.